0: Santa Barbara talks with Josh Molina. Such a pleasure today to be here with the very well-known, renowned (laughs) political consultant and managing partner of Hidden Gems PR, and uh, somebody who's a great source of mine, Wade Cooper. How are you today? You're
1: letting the cat out of the bag uh, this early on.
0: (laughs) Hey, great source. I didn't say what kind of source, right? You, But, but it is true. It is undeniable. You know everything, and you're a journalist friend. So. You're going to make poor Nick jealous. What are we doing? <laughs> oh,
1: no, no. I'm sure Nick's got it down to you, So Nobody's jealous here. How's it going? It's going very well. It's yeah. going super well. Glad to uh, come in and, and chat. We've been, I know we've been trying to connect and, and talk about uh, the press and the media for a while. Um, so, yeah, glad to be here.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. You were one of my original guests, and we've done this a couple of times, so... Today, we're going to focus the conversation on media, media relations, uh, the perception of the media. Wade, you are somebody who is very unique in this world in terms of all the people I've covered, the consultants that I've covered, in that you have an approach of no BS, be honest, talk to the journalist, tell them the truth, and I know you have a lot of respect for the work that, that journalists do. So we're gonna have a conversation around the role of the media and how journalists and public relations professionals should should interact with. But but let me, let me just start off with, what is your attitude toward the media when it comes to your, your clients, whether elected or your nonprofit groups you work with?
1: It, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think that the thing that we lose sight of a lot of times when we're interacting with the press is the extent to which it's a symbiotic relationship. You know, if I'm pitching you a story, at the end of the day, I need you to write the story. It doesn't do me any good to just be screaming into a void. And in the same... On the other side, the journalist is is looking for information and a lot of times just relying on sources and and PR people, um, comms directors and stuff like that for, for information and sometimes, like, a deeper dive into stuff. And so I've always looked at it like, uh, we're in this together, and, you know, I I guess along, so I, I never really had any formal media training. Uh, I was working on a congressional campaign once upon a time, and somebody had read something I wrote in an email, and just liked the way I wrote, and started having me write remarks for, for the candidate, and uh, so I just started kind of writing some stuff that way, and then Essentially, I'm fundamentally a self-taught comms person, mm-hmm. uh, never really worked under someone who was very hands-on with anything I was doing. And so my interactions around this were way more with journalists than it was with other um, like PR people, other comms people. Mm-hmm. And so i've, you know the I've always thought, essentially, that uh my the way i approach it which is i I would would probably a little bit lighter touch is i mean it's just a it's a nicer way to deal with people and go through life and and b i personally have always found it to be way more effective yeah
0: well there's there's a couple kinds of pr people that you work with there's like the controllers like they provide everything for you and they want to make it as easy for you as possible but one of the things they don't understand about that is a lot of journalists will feel as though, oh, you think I'm incompetent. Like, I can't shape the story myself. I need oh, you to do the, the whole thing for me. And so sometimes there can be a little bit of pushback if it's laid out perfectly. There's those other PR people who just want to tell you something and the journalist knows this is not true. You know, it's you're, you're exaggerating. Yeah, analogies. just straight spin. Right. And then there's someone like you who is, hey, I'm going to treat you like a professional in your field. Here's what I have to talk about and I hope you're interested. Let me talk to you about it and let me explain it to you. And I think that really works because it gives the journalist a sense of, you know, this is my choice to do a story. I'm not being forced to do it. And maybe that's like high-level skill stuff, you know, that you're doing that like Let's make the journalists think that no, it's, it's their idea. I know, no, I, w- I wish
1: it. I wish it was. I wish I was that <laughs> smart. It's not. Um, I. Uh, <laughs> but I just wanted to go back on something you said. So that's interesting that you say to me that there's instances where people sort of spoon feed you things and you feel condescended to. Like right. that had never occurred to me. Right. And and now in retrospect, I probably. Um, I probably have done that with a couple people and not realized how uh condescending it was. <laughs> but, but can you can you talk about like maybe an ex- maybe an example if you got one off the top of your head that you'd be comfortable sharing?
0: Of a PR person sort of pushing. Yeah, or pushing. a PIO, or just any
1: sort of comms person, communications person who's like who spoon-fed you something and you felt like condescended to like, dude, I'm not an idiot. Yeah, well, it
0: comes up, I write a lot about businesses, and so a lot of the PR people in the business world will write up the little mini feature for me, and so they'll have the little quotes from the owner and the quotes from the the partner in the organization, and then they'll say, you know, it's kind of ready to go, and you can just use this and just run this, and it's like you don't understand in order for me to write about it, there has to be some sort of news to it. It can't just be these are really good people right And then there's the like in politics in PR, you know you you are you haven't you, have you have a group that you represent, right And there's there's like these people represent the conservatives. these people represent the Democrats and each one has their own sort of little, spin for why they think a story should be a story. And so a lot of times if it's like a candidate, like I'm getting uh, pitched right now to do a candidate, to do a story on a assembly candidate for the Republican party, you know, and it's like, Oh, she's this, she's this, she's this, you know, and she's a great, this and a great, this, and you know, you really should have her on your show and you should talk to her. And she's getting, you know, she's just right. so different, you know, and it's like, if they lay it on tooth, thick that way, the journalist radar is, no, there must be something here, because I should be able to talk to this person and come to my own conclusions (laughs) on that, but I'll bring up Alejandra Gutierrez, Uh, you know, I met with her when she was running for council, and she didn't have any public representative person, and we met over at a coffee shop on on Haley Street, and, you know, that was really good, because she just, we just kind of talked, at a table over coffee, and I think that is uh, a really good way. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complicated. M- you know, maybe her PR person told her just talk to Josh, and that's he, that's, he, he did. He did, yeah. <laughs> and That goes a long way to f- to helping to get your story yeah. out. Like if, if it's simple, yeah. simplicity, journalists like that they don't like the thinking of well we're going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at this journalist to get them to write our story because most of us were too smart we're going to see
1: right through that and it's funny because i i do think that a lot of uh, business pr people their my guess is probably that in their mind that they're thinking i'm making this easy on the journalist Mm -hmm. and when you're writing a press release or when you're in PR, there's this fine line when you're dealing with press people of I want to essentially give them the option of sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, regurgitating my press release because it, it does happen. I, I, I hate to admit that. Not everybody it puts as much time in as, as Josh and a lot of the other people in town i'll name check everyone over the course of the show (laughs) but we love nick though nick's great journalist nick Nick. jerry melinda doing it for free i'll I'll do more soon um but 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 i think that it's it's hard to know where that line is of okay i've written your essentially i've written the story for you and hey let me just give you the bare bones because i know that this person the the four or five people are going to cover it, you know, or if I'm in Austin, like the six people covered whatever, they're going to reach out to me. And this is the sort of opening salvo and that there will be enough follow-up. And, you know, when I worked in bigger cities, we were also in a very different sort of media landscape where there were just essentially more people covering stuff. And so if you sent a press release And I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. I, 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 mm, I, I I'm like, all right, well, we'll just go all in here. Uh, (laughs) Give people some free tips. I just don't know how effective press releases are in 2023. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like press relations requires so much uh, more effort than it once did. Mm -hmm. Um, There's fewer media outlets. And it requires a great deal of, of skill to effectively communicate why a story is, is more relevant than the 43 other stories that get pitched in that day. Like I can only imagine Nick Welsh's inbox on a daily basis with 73 people who he biked by in the morning going, oh, you know what, I got a great story. This should be in there, that should be in there. People pitch you all the time. Sure. This should be in there. And so- I'm driving
0: around in my blue minivan though. Yeah, I'm not on the bike like Nick. <laughs> And I, you know, I still got a little kids. So. It's an electric bike. Let's not call it a bike.
1: Um, Nick doesn't drive an electric shots, bike. Shots fired. I think he does. Oh, wow. And he's flying down Daily La today. Okay, the other day. Right. Um right. <laughs> we're really in the weeds on journalists now. we we'll the drinking game uh, <laughs> every time we mention Nick Welsh.
0: You know. um,
1: but um, but let, me, let me ask you about yeah, that because... Yeah.
0: Uh, what I do notice about you is, and this is what good PR people do, is they cultivate relationships. So yeah. journalists hate feeling as though they're being used. Yeah. Oh, the only time the PR person reaches out to me is when they want a story. You're really good at doing that maintenance along the way. So, hey, Josh, hey, Nick, whomever, um, just checking in. How's it going? And then maybe a week later, you want something, but it matters. Like, you know, it's like Wade put in the time earlier, so I'm going to yeah. listen to him. I know you said you were self-taught, but uh, talk a little bit about why you will take time out of your day to cultivate the journalist relationship, even if you don't want a story that day.
1: Oh, dude, it's not even that. My day is just like sitting on the phone. I sit on the phone for like six hours a day every day. I check in with all kinds of people. Um, Number one, I love just kind of shooting the shit with journalists because... I'm not to, you know, pat myself on the back too hard, but I'm in a fairly rare situation where I have a lot of information and a lot of background on a lot of subjects that kind of go on in town that would be covered by the news. And there's precious few other people that I can even have a basic conversation about some of this stuff with. You know, there's a few topics that I've worked on doing PR for where the journalists um, know, you know, as much as anyone right. about the topic. And, and so it makes it actually really enjoyable a lot of times for me to talk about it. And, um, you know, when I was doing uh, more campaign stuff, to be able to talk to um, journalists just about kind of the horse race aspect of it. But that's not just true. Locally, Mm -hmm. that's true. That's true everywhere. You know, every time the the like game change guys would write a book. I guess it's guy now. But every time they would write a game change book, you'd read it and you go, "Well, how do they know all this stuff?" And the answer is because when you're on a presidential campaign or a congressional campaign or whatever, oftentimes the most fun people to talk to are the journalists who are covering it. And you're doing a background. They might say, "I'm going to put this in a book." I don't care. My name's never going to be on this, right. but they know because they're there right. and they see also what happens. The you know, you go to a, a, a presidential event, let's say you're in Iowa, whatever, there's 100 people that the cameras go off, and everyone just leaves. The only other people who are hanging around at the end of it are the people who are on the campaign, and then maybe the two, three, four, five right. journalists covering the race, right. and so they see. A lot of stuff that other people don't see, including, boy, uh, like, for instance, the way big-time candidates will interact with their staff, interact with other people, because the lights go off, and a lot of people switch flips, mm-hmm. and, and they're different. And so, I, I mean, it's just naturally been a fun conversation for me, with, with not just with you, but like with everybody. So, keep it up.
0: I want to talk about national media relations and sort of the attitude toward news, but how do you handle when journalists, in your eyes, messes something up or has the wrong angle or is factually wrong? Because I can tell you right now, and every PR person in town who I work with knows this, um, if you email me or you call me and you imply that I need to do a retraction for a factual error it's like let's learn what these terms mean first of all there are no retractions unless we libeled you (laughs) with malice yeah that's a legal term of course we can do corrections if something is wrong uh but there's this fine dance right like if you're just like you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong you're burning yourself with that journalist down the road how do you handle bad press
1: um so it really depends um because there are I, there have been times in my life where I've dealt with journalists, and it's oftentimes somebody who I'm relatively new to dealing with, who um, I I feel uh, I feel that either my client or more frustratingly me myself uh, that. that There's something that they don't like about me or they they don't like about my client that hasn't really... It's just personal. And I get it. Like, we're all people. I I dig. I've spent enough time talking to journalists now that you all have the same likes and dislikes as everyone else. Like, this sort of strange thing that all journalists are like tabula rasa, that they don't... That's not true, but they're professionals. And so they set those things aside, which used to be a fairly common thing in America. It seems to have gone away now. But you'd set those things aside to do your job. Are are you
0: suggesting that I should not be on a podcast saying leadership only happens in election years? No.
1: Go ahead. I'm not suggesting that on a podcast. Um, But I do... Yeah, like, I I, I think that... um, I, I will push back softly. But fundamentally, I, I think, hey, I've been, I work with these uh, journalists all the time. And sometimes it's going to go your way, and sometimes it's not. Uh, there's never been an undefeated basketball team. It just, like, you win some, you lose some. Mm-hmm. You know, and in, in, <clears throat> I don't remember. I think uh, Connie Mack said this about baseball you win fifty games, you lose fifty games, is what you do with other fifty games that matters. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially how I feel in dealing with stories, because not everything is gonna be great. And honestly, I have clients that screw things up mm-hmm. and I do my best to clean things up sometimes, but sometimes something gets taken out of context or whatever. You say your piece and you move on, but do it respectfully and understanding that people are just—they're—they're they're doing their best. For the most part, they're doing their best to do their job. Yeah. And this brings me to my um, the uh, everybody uh, hold on to your butts. It's Uh-oh. the it's the Weinstein Clinton theory. All right. Okay. Um, I, I I have the button ready to okay, pause all right, right, all right. right now just, just, just kidding. don't get fired <laughs> I think there's a lot
0: of people out there away who would love to cancel the both of us at the same <laughs> time okay go ahead so here's the
1: here's the the Weinstein Clinton theory and it's that an entire generation of comms people the best either came from Hollywood or DC like they came from politics or Hollywood and the most effective communications people in the early 90s were the Clinton team and Miramax, which was mm-hmm. run by Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. And when something would not go their way, mm-hmm. they would hit you with everything they had. I just said
0: flashbacks of the Laura Cap's
1: campaign. Go ahead. <laughs> well, because she worked for Clinton.
0: That's not a jab. No, 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 no. She no, did no, the no, art no. During that era. True. Go ahead. And, Laura, Laura's
1: the best. I'm just saying that. That's a style. Go ahead. And, but it, but it's, it is a style that was taught to all of the top PR professionals around the country, essentially. Because the, if the best of the best are doing this, like if you're being rewarded for that behavior by winning an Oscar or right. winning a, a presidential campaign, yeah. having. I mean, he wound up with, like, what, this, when he left office, Clinton, like, a 68% approval rating or something. Holy cow. And so, it, oftentimes, it's hard to argue with results. Yeah. And so, I think that the, the, that attitude of, when something doesn't go your way, just attack, 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 attack. I think that it is because, I mean, I, you know, Gen, Gen X are... A little older, but they're still not that old, and they are sort of the predominantly, I'd say, like C-suite level of of you know American business, politics, etc. Now, and they Gen X was very imbued with that notion of dealing with the media, and so what what has has happened over time is that where once upon a time there were tons and tons and tons of media outlets, and you had the opportunity to really be punitive with uh, a media outlet because they wanted to do an interview with uh, your movie star or in political or with the president or the vice president or some whatever. The, the, your ability to be standoffish and be punitive in terms of giving people interviews or not was way, way greater than it is today. And I think that that's trickled down through generations of people in PR and it's no longer as effective because when you're doing PR, number one, a ton of it is on social media, so it's like direct-to-consumer. I was about to say D to C. Uh, like You're going directly to the, to the person. You're talking to the camera. Right. Um, or you're dealing with the fewer, bigger news outlets that remain, and you're fighting to have your message heard. Yeah. So that's, that's my... Uh, it's the, we- the Weinstein-Clinton theory. Yeah. No. What do you that think?
0: That makes a lot of sense. No, I thought you were going to go in another direction there. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, and um, you can sort of see that dealing with the different styles of PR generationally. And, of course, today, PR is a little bit of a petri dish with social media yeah. and young PR professionals kind of trying to figure out every way to get attention on a product it's no longer just the press release as you had said uh the press release can be effective but nothing is for me more effective than just proactive communication and being helpful but not controlling and when you when, when, when there's an error or some messaging that they don't agree with not demanding something but sort of like bringing it to their attention that stop those styles matter political PR is the worst like these people are horrendous you know I want to talk to you I would never speak ill of (laughs) anyone (laughs) but I I will say that uh good PR people are just uh diamonds like you just want to keep them close and hold them because hidden gems so to speak yes because um They help you do your yeah, job as uh, a journalist, and we all care about the same things. Yeah. The PR person and the journalist is about information distribution. PR is for the client. Journalism is for everybody, sort of the mass audience. But you know, most of that links together. It's yeah. the same thing. Yeah, for sure. And so I do like PR people, uh, especially the really good ones who know, know their stuff. Uh, what do you think of the local media landscape? Uh, we've got News Press just went out of business. We have, of course... I write for Newshawk. We mentioned Nick Welsh from The Independent. We have, you know, your friend Gwen Lurie at the Montecito Journal. Um there's lots of publications and uh Gwen if you're watching, I mentioned the Montecito Journal. So um, I would have made him if you (laughs) Um, all previous lack of references were not intentional. Um, so uh, what do you think of our local media landscape? Do we do a good job, or, I mean, how would you characterize it? Boy, it's such
1: a, it's such a tough question. I was at the Texas Tribune Festival uh, about a month ago, and I sat in some incredible panels, many of which were discussing local journalism and the future of local journalism. And I had an opportunity to talk to a bunch of people from across the country. It was It was a very interesting cross-section of... Um, journalists from places like um, you know, like Tulsa, Oklahoma, obviously in Texas, and then Berkeley side, and and some mm. nonprofit journalistic ventures. Um, who uh, and then Cal Matters, and and anyway, uh, but just got to talk to a lot of cool people, and and it gave me a very interesting perspective on you know what. What we have and how to value it, and, and also the work that we need to do. Um, I, the fact of the matter is that we, I think, and I'm way more interested in what you guys say about this, <laughs> we wound up in a place that was, and I'm, I'm sure you talked about this before, that was, they just started giving it away for free, the, all the big papers, they just put it on the internet, uh, we're not particularly forward thinking. And an entire generation, starting with millennials, just thought that news was free. Mm-hmm. And um, it started to kill the business model. And, you know, it's, it's tough. And, and the funny thing is that I think is never really trickled down into the minds of people is that the news business is not, in 2023, and it will not be in twenty twenty four a good business. It is a it is a, a business where you can make money, um, but it's not like it was in all the way up until like two thousand. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a reason why the you know Knight Foundation is that these foundations have hundreds of billion. Uh, millions and sometimes billions of dollars is because those publishers of those newspapers made a fortune and oftentimes were the most powerful people and if we want to go further back there's some problematic things with some of the ways that newspapers were run particularly like all the way up to the 50s, a little later sometimes, (laughs) but um, it's not a good business anymore Mm -hmm. and I think that a lot of people who consume news they think that there's someone on the other end of this getting rich and that they don't need their money mm-hmm. and that mentality I think has has sort of really trickled into all kinds of stuff and I'm, I'm curious to know what like, what do you think I mean this is this is more broad than the than the yeah. local the local news scene
0: yeah, well we do have a whole generation that grew up thinking that whenever they went to a news site or on their went to their phones that news is just magically appears, yeah, yeah. And there's not a lot of thought in the fact that somebody had to create that and who paid for that. So traditionally it was advertising, but after 08, 2008, but even before then yeah. we saw a decline, but you know that recession killed the the housing market, the auto markets. Classifieds were already being taken by yeah. Craigslist, and all of that. Those those companies that would advertise went away, and so this dramatic shrinkage. And so the companies dropped the ball yeah. because they they in the beginning they thought the internet will drive people to buy the newspaper, yeah. and it was you know sort
1: of like flipped, yeah, and it, it, it ate it and said
0: yeah, and so. Um, That's on the companies for not being proactive and not thinking about that And so now, you know, we see the LA Times and New York Basically every outlet now big outlet gives you certain amount of free articles and then you can charge But you can also gimmick that really well. You can clear your you know history and you can open up a new window and you can you know there's ways that students and young people can get around that you know because there's a lot of stuff to pay for in this world. You know, the idea of paying for news is just like, why would I do that? Especially when
1: people learn so much through word of mouth and social media. You know? So that, so that's an issue. Do you, do you I mean, you teach, right? Yeah. So you interact um, with yeah. a lot of, you know, people out of Gen Z and then, I mean, all, close to Gen Y, almost I don't know. But, um, I mean, you've dealt with a lot of people in in Gen Z, and then, you know, younger millennials. Do you think that they generationally understand even what, like on a base level, like what news is?
0: Well, I think that my
1: students do, because they yeah, spend yeah, time enjoy. doing
0: that. Um, I think that generally there's a perception that, and this is even before Trump, but that These corporations are somehow scheming together in some back room to mastermind what people should know and shouldn't know. And there is a little bit of that that exists among everybody, but particularly people who grew up without a newspaper in the house, without reading it around the kitchen table or wherever. So I I think there's a good amount of people who at least start my class who are kind of just puzzled by the whole concept of what news is. And the best way to teach them is to tell them to go write stories because right. they're like, whoa, this is hard. I have to right. actually research and, and talk to people. But this idea of how do we turn this around is a really difficult concept because locally, I mean, I don't know how much the Montecito Journal plays at staff writers. But the other places, you know, you're getting hired. <laughs> well, you know, she did say we are making money. Hand over fist. No, she was,
1: she literally said we're not. She literally said we are. Okay, as, was, she would be ironic. Okay. For those of you who don't know, let me fill you in. There was a <laughs> panel a few weeks ago that Josh and I attended, which was the, the essentially the Genesis. I of this got particular ovation, podcast. I got an ovation. You attended. Because. Where, uh, uh, <laughs> Okay, you got no vision Josh got no an vision anyway it's where Sarah from the independence had mentioned had said if anyone tells you they're making a fortune in uh, in the news business they're lying to you and then Gwyn said well we are making a fortune it was a Obviously a joke, and Josh uh, knows it was a
0: joke. I, I laughed. I thought Gwen did a great job with that comment, and if I were covering it, I would have quoted that. That was a great quote. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but what I'm saying is, a starting salary is like yeah. seventeen bucks a yeah, hour an hour in item. this town know. for uh, a news reporter, and so the challenges of of having strong local media is the turnover rate. Yeah. So I mean, who's going to work for that for very long? and uh journalism's hard yeah like it's difficult there's no it's it's not like you can phone it in and so you kind of like for 17 18 bucks i'm out of here so they they move they go do other things and so you need that institutional knowledge to to help a community because i mean you know this how many different reporters have you worked with and don't name any organizations but just all of us like there's a churn there's a massive churn you know and so you, you want to reference something from a year ago, you have to explain it.
1: Yeah. I mean and and um, to your earlier point, that's probably where I have gotten in some trouble Sound seeming a little exasperated and condescending at times with <laughs> with new people where I'm like, Okay, this is the third this is the third different time that I've explained this to someone. Right. And but I I'm curious, what do you you know, as a as a journalism professor and and I hope you haven't discussed this topic already on, on another Podcast that I happen to not listen to. But, like, it's what do you think? Because you listen to all of them, right? I, yeah, I, listen, <laughs> to, I, listen, I do listen to all of them. Um, but, like, what do you think of the of solutions? Solutions, okay. So, I how, think, do, how do we fix local journalism? Well,
0: it's a hybrid way. Like, okay. It's traditional advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, that still pays a majority of the bills, so to speak. But we need community support. We mm-hmm. need uh, people to give money, yeah. donate money. Right. And I know that NewsHawk does this, The Independent. I, I know during the pandemic did it. I'm sure they, they they might you know send out emails asking for contributions as well. Um, you need to remind people constantly that we have people in the community doing this important right. work and we need your support if we want it to continue. Because the other thing is what happens with the shrinking of newsrooms, it's like we're always going to cover city hall, we're always going to cover board of supervisors, school board, education, but with a reduced staff, the things that get lost are all of these communities that have been underserved for decades. And so, you know, in Santa Barbara, in California, we're talking about the large Latino population, yes. Latino population, and uh, of course, we're talking about all underrepresented, you know, communities, all people of color. African-American communities, everyone, LGBTQ+, um, and, you know, even people just focusing on health care and right. poverty issues. And those beats are the ones that go away when you have two reporters right. or three reporters in a newsroom. So I think asking the community, say, hey, donate to this so we can cover these topics that the community cares about um, is one way. I think people will give money to that. The challenge of that, though, is that people... When they give money, they have an expectation that the coverage is going to be a certain way. So there has to be kind of an
1: understanding there. So it, it's, it, I, I, I think that this goes, what I'm, what I'm going to say, I think it goes back to something that we kind of mentioned earlier. was Recently, um, the Carpenteria paper, the Coastal View News, mm-hmm. essentially put on their front page, like, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. We need your support. And from what I understand, the, the community has actually done a, <clears throat> a pretty good job in supporting the paper and recognizing that it's a need. And while I think some other people um, who are around the news business thought that that might not have been a good look or might not have been a good idea, I actually wholeheartedly disagreed. And I thought, no, this is this is the message that needs to be conveyed because, to my point earlier, I think m- people think that there's people in news that making money and like we're reaching the end of the runway and conveying that to your readership and to the people who love what you're what you're doing and value it is super important and I think that a lot of news organizations have not done a good job at that and and I mean the the news press is is a perfect example Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean I it seems to me like well actually I don't know that was like an experiment in in money emulation that I don't <laughs> fully understand, so let's just leave that aside. But, like, when an organization that's a, essentially a public trust, for lack of a better way of putting it, like a newspaper is kind of like a sports team. like it's, yes, it's a business, but it's also a part of the community in a way that so few businesses are. Mm-hmm. And when when you're going down, you got you have to communicate, like, hey, we are in trouble. This is the honest reality of this situation. Sure. And that doesn't always happen. It's just here today, gone tomorrow. Some PE firm picks it up or whatever, right. and, and you wind up with some of these ghost papers that we have even here in the county, you know? It's like Santa Maria Times. Is yeah. I mean, do they have? I mean, it's like I think they have one journalist who's there. I think Mike right. is the only journalist who's there now. Yeah, and it's it's sad because I, talk Mike about Hunch, yeah, oh, yeah, talk about news deserts. I, I, I mean, that's. Hundreds of thousands of people. Well, you know, San, no Santa family. Maria is
0: larger than the city
1: of Santa oh, I Barbara. People, people you know, forget that all the time. It's, it's like, horrible. you know,
0: every Tuesday, it's like every journalist in Santa Barbara is like, Santa Barbara County, Santa Barbara City. There's more people in Santa Barbara. I know, <laughs> I know. know. It's just the way it is, um, you know, the, I mean speaking of like Santa Maria, that there's a huge Latino yeah. population yeah, yeah, that doesn't get, you know, represented there at all. Um, so also, another thing is this idea of legislation to fund journalism. Yeah. Uh, these elected officials, I never hear them talking about, uh, like, should we, you know, in the Assembly or the Senate, can we pass a, uh, you know, a tax or something that, you know, some kind of money will go to fund journalism? It's really tricky because you don't want government having any say over what journalists do. On the other hand, uh, we need all kinds of different revenue. Yeah. So it's worth considering.
1: I mean, the, the uh, people, I think, because of the the model that exists in the U.S. forever, we're kind of locked into it. And we're very, you know, we're Americans. We're very afraid of you know government intrusion. Um, but, you just, in England, the BBC is perfectly functional and, yeah. and government funded. And yes, they have ad revenue and yeah, 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 but they get a significant portion of their funding from the government, which, in point of fact, most American public uh, news really doesn't. It's mostly donor based Like NPR gets some small, like light sprinkling of of money, but that's it's mostly donation based But what I what I'd like to see in California is essentially a program where. Every assembly district or every county gets X amount of money, and it, it would be a flat amount of money. So it would be like a million dollars, which would be $52 million a year, which is not a huge portion of the California budget. But a million dollars for a news organization in Lake County or a news organization in Santa Barbara County is massive.
0: I might return your call
1: sooner. <laughs> In LA County, they do need it less. There are more way more functional news outlets there. And so the the million dollars would have less of an impact there. Yeah. But they they do need it less. The places who have the most it would allow them to do more, of course. Mm-hmm. But the places that need it the most that are like true true news deserts, yeah. it would give them a new lease on life and would allow an incredible amount of accountability for their local government that there are, there, are, I guarantee you, there are many, many, many city councils that have never been covered. And there are, I bet, a few boards of supervisors in this state that get very little coverage, if any at all. Right. So, and and that, it, like, A, uh, it's a great way to Provide jobs for a very valuable part of the workforce, which is journalists. Uh, yeah, we'll get log rolling for you. <laughs> but it's very doable inside our budget. And I, I think if, if, I mean, I'm a Democrat, we as Democrats, and hopefully Republicans, it's, you know, frankly, I've, like, my Republican friends have expressed. As much, if not more, concern about the lack of of news coverage for a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. in the county and, and locally as my Democratic friends. Have. Yeah. Well, if you're, you know, so, I think it's, I do think it's bipartisan, but I I think that it has to become a priority. And in California, obviously, it's one party rule. The Democratic Party has to take this up mm-hmm. as a value, and you know for. We always, so goes California, goes the nation, which we, of course, like, sh- blow a bunch of smoke up our own asses. It's not always true. But this is something we can lead on for a very low cost and be a model to the rest of the country, that this is a value. This is worth having.
0: So can you talk to Megan Harmon to make this happen? She seems like the the one who would lead this initiative. Well, you know, she did pass the hero pay for the grocery store. Yeah. So, No, but seriously, how do we talk to legislators to make this happen?
1: Well, I think it's, I mean, there's associations of journalists across the state. There's uh, a. Society, SPJ. SPJ. Well, there's SPJ, but also there's like a Hispanic Journalists Association, which I I think would, like some of those minority journalists association, this would probably disproportionately affect them Mm -hmm. because a lot of their members, I would guess, I'm making this up, but I would guess that a lot of their members are in places like the Central Valley, Salinas, places like that where. They have a dearth of of news funding and it would be super helpful. And so starting with some associations and probably starting with our, our local leadership right here in, in Santa Barbara. I mean we have very highly placed uh, state senator now. She's doing a great job up there. I mean this seems like something maybe she'd be interested in.
0: Yeah, that would that would be fantastic to think about different you know creative revenues there maybe maybe one of your clients down the road so. <laughs> can anyway we, um, can we talk a little bit about hidden gems yeah it's uh, your latest um, sort of initiative and uh, so what does that entail I always hear Santa Barbara has the most nonprofits per capita than any place in the world is that a true statistic that can is get... that I
1: mean it's gotta be yeah <laughs> if it, I mean if it's not there is some place that has way too many nonprofits <laughs> um, but there are a ton of nonprofits in Santa Barbara and it, in the nonprofit community it is it is really hard to break through you know it's hard to cut through uh, the cacophony of you know voices from vo- one of those
0: Jerry Roberts newsletter words <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you drop you drop the next name okay,
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know when I when I reach out to to somebody like uh, like Ryan Cruz from the Independent to <laughs> put him on, a, <laughs> pitch him on a story, um, but no, it's 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 hard to cut through here, and it, it really is, and it takes a very you know specific knowledge of of the community, and as a fourth generation Santa Barbarian, I'm I'm you know love telling people, but um, you know I. I have a sense of the community, and, and I understand you know, what the needs of the local nonprofits, and then also you know, what stories are going to work and, and how to tell them. And my, my goal mainly is I've looked around for a long time and seen a bunch of incredible nonprofits doing incredible work who just don't do a very good job at telling their own story. Yeah. And yes, you do work. But part of it is it's really hard to connect if it's not in, in a real narrative that people can follow and people can consume. Mm-hmm. And that gets lost because when you're at a nonprofit, you're focused on two things. Raising money and programs. That's essentially what you're doing. And there's very little ability to take that step back and and look holistically at what you're trying to say as far as what you're doing. And that's where I would come in, and that's what what I'm I'm here to help people with. And, and I've I've so far, I mean, I've been working with nonprofits for for years and years and years and years. But it's been been a fun ride since I started this particular firm six or so months ago. Mm-hmm. But it's it's been good.
0: Is it true that Councilwoman Kristen Sneddon used to
1: babysit you? Uh, from I think from time to time. So. Uh, so I, I thought of that
0: when you said fourth generation and that you grew up with <laughs>
1: uh council council member Snedden's uh mom, who is a bona fide badass. Carol uh Carol 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 is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um she worked with my mom like a few years ago. <laughs> I've learned not to age anybody, myself included. Okay. Okay. So Sorry. I've known I've known Kristen forever and, and um and yeah, it's it's been it's been fun to you know sort of reconnect years later and but uh, yeah yes so to answer your question
0: so so it's your turn yeah. I'm Oscar Spain.
1: Oscar used to babysit me too little known fact Oscar Gutierrez, Gutierrez. wow I did not know that <laughs>
0: you think he's <laughs> younger than I am I don't know maybe maybe it's like you know a, a big brother kind of thing you know watching the little kid you know. Um, so, oh, so you do political consulting work, you have your own firm, you have Hidden Gems, you have a law degree, right? So yeah. How does your law degree help you in the world that you're in? Absolutely not at all.
1: <laughs> Don't go to law school. Don't go to law school. Do not go to law school. Yeah, my son's going to law school. You so. want to know what? <laughs> I have told so many people not to go to law school, and two people who... As they were going to law school, I gave them the spiel about not going to law school. Both of them have subsequently said, I, I, I hate this. I, I wish I would, was not doing this. Mm-hmm. And and I never say I told you so to people, but that's one where I will. I am here publicly on a podcast saying, do not go to law school.
0: So so, what do you mean by that? You mean that the cost to get through it, you're paying those
1: loans off, and and you... Did it find the law career you wanted if, or what? If you if you did not grow up, like, watching Boston Legal or, <laughs> or uh, Law & Order or something, and it was your dream your entire life to be a lawyer, yeah. don't go to law school. Mm-hmm. My experience, having gone to law school and, like, knowing everyone involved in my life being a lawyer. My dad's a lawyer. My mom was a lawyer. Like, everybody's a lawyer. My friends were lawyers, my dad's friends were lawyers, all of it.
0: Yeah. I went
1: to law school, my partner's a lawyer. So me, my partner Paula, her twin, Fran, her other sister Jessica, and her twin, Fran's she is a twin. husband, Nick, we all went to law school together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I believe, at last count, zero of us are actually like at a law firm practicing law. I mean, I I think that they, they do legal like legal work, it's, right. but it's just they lost the law school sells you on a, a thing that doesn't exist. They tell you that this is a high paying occupation. I guarantee you the median salary for an attorney in the city of Santa Barbara would probably shock you. I, I think it probably is commensurate for what many teachers at SBUSD probably get paid. But is there
0: some benefit just like having that on your resume when you're when you're trying to get clients? Because it certainly elevates you in terms of like, you know, Wade, Wade Cooper's got a law degree versus the other person who doesn't have a law degree. I mean, it's impressive, right? I, I think, think this conversation is the most
1: <laughs> elevating <laughs> that it's That's made. what I do. I, I'll empower you, too, Wade. Uh, I, no, I don't. I'm... I've never really done anything that is relevant for it, to be honest with you. Um, I wanted to be, well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I wanted to be a lot. I worked in Texas. I worked around the Capitol in Texas. Yeah. The only people in Texas who made any money around the Capitol were lobbyists. Okay. So I went, great. Oh. This is a good way to make money in the political world. Go be a lobbyist. Like, <laughs> sounds rich now, but you're not going to spend your whole life just doing political campaigns. So, you know, you've got to go make a living. So I went to law school in Sacramento and spent time as like a, I was a le- legislative aide, but like basically a lobbyist. Hated it. Hated every minute of it. I have no interest in working at or near a capital again for the rest of my life. Dude, just can't do it. Yeah. And, um, and then, yeah, essentially just kind of went back to doing what I was doing before that. Right. You know, I, I don't know. Like I said, if it's your dream to be a lawyer, go to law school. Go to the best law school you can go to. Go to the best law school you can go to. And, um, yeah, other than that, just don't go. It's yeah. not... Yeah. And, I mean, if you want me to get really dark, like, AI is going to kill so many legal jobs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, so many.
0: We're not talking about AI. I'm not a... Okay, yeah. It, 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 you know, sophisticated enough next, to ask you. Next time. Next next, time. next podcast. National media... Um, I, I really never understood the infatuation with Trump, even you know, when he was running the first time. I think the media gave him all of this attention because they didn't think he was going to win. He was just this celebrity, this outspoken, straight-talking sort of personality. And they gave him so much free press, and, and now they've created this monster that won't go away and we they still cover him every and of course now there's like news reasons but what's your take on the national media? How bad are we? How bad are they? Are they, you want to sort of say they're maybe defend them a little bit? What's your take?
1: No, I have absolutely no defense for for I think for the most part what you're talking about is cable news. And I don't I no longer watch any cable news. Yeah. Aside from on election night, I'll put on CNN or whatever to get get the results.
0: Electoral college yeah. counts. Yeah. Everything else,
1: I can. I, I listen to PBS. I, I still get a paper. Paper. I'm probably not like whatever. I'm a weird millennial. And I get a paper. Paper. I listen to PBS NewsHour as a podcast every single morning. Mm-hmm. If I need more news, sometimes I'll listen to NPR too. Uh, I'm a news junkie, so you know. But cable news is probably the most destructive force in national politics. They put on a television show, and Donald Trump is the best, or was, the best show on TV. Mm-hmm. I, I, it was impossible to look away. I could not stand him, but I found myself tuning in. And it did make for great TV. That is Absolutely undeniable, mm-hmm. and so if you're programming these news networks, like you're going to want to put them on as much as possible. Now, I, I think it's just kind of trite and boring, and he, he just says things that make absolutely no sense, and it's none of it's none of it is is entertaining to me anymore. Right. And so, okay, I got it. He's going to say something dumb and lie through his teeth. Okay, <laughs> All right. but I, I don't. There's it, it, you know why is it still going on? Because people only want feedback loops. Yeah. People just want reflected back onto themselves what they already believe, uh-huh. and it's it's the, you know some huge percentage, something like okay, I'm not going to throw out statistics, but some huge percentage of Gen Z get their news from TikTok. Uh-huh. And the other day, I discovered part of what that meant was that there are these things called news influencers. You you are familiar with this, I'm sure. This is frightening to me. Are you familiar with this? I have scrolled a little bit on TikTok,
0: but it usually ends with me deleting the app after about an hour because it's such a waste of time. So go ahead. I have no social media,
1: except I got back on LinkedIn when I I started this new firm. Uh, I hate social media. It is absolutely destroying our country. It is horrible for you. It's horrible for your brain. I do not understand why everybody is more than happy to say drugs are bad for you, but no one wants to admit that social media is bad for
0: you. And an hour into this podcast, there's a PR person watching this saying, Wade's missed the boat. Social media is the future, and it's so important. Um, I do it for know. work. Right, right. You just don't do it for personal. No. Work. Yeah. But, I mean, there are questions like how how meaningful is social media, you know, it's not, you know, in terms of even if you have a client, but but go ahead with your TikTok. Info That's going to a whole other. Yeah, uh, but there's a
1: news influencers who literally they get a paper, read it, and then <laughs> they basically really? just read the paper to people on TikTok. Uh-huh. And it was the most enraging thing I had seen. Just get a paper. Uh-huh. It's like two dollars. <laughs> what I mean? What are we doing here? And. It's how people consume news, but fundamentally, those stories are being selected for what is going to get the influencer the most positive feedback, or negative, anyway, what's going to get them the most attention, most clicks, most likes. Right. And so, it's a feedback loop of delivering people, essentially, what they either absolutely love or absolutely hate, and it's all just confirmation bias. So people are not learning anything new, and if we go about our national journalistic, um, you know, market, market like that, we're we're screwed. I mean, it's, it's horrible for democracy. Like, and it's people have to decide. People have to decide to, basically, change the channel. And I mean, I I think that the only, like the only way that we're going to get there is if we have mandatory civics education, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe even two years of mandatory civics education, I would think like something when kids are about uh, eight or nine, first going into social studies, and then a little bit later, maybe like 14, 15 when they're in high school, to like reinforce it. And as they're a little bit older and have a little bit better sense of the world, they're starting to formulate their opinions on what's going on in the world. To recalibrate that with reality. Um, and because, you know, I think a big part of it is people don't know what city council does. People don't know what the board of supervisors does. Mm-hmm. They don't know what Congress does. They don't know what the president does. Right. And so if you're being fed a load of hogwash by um, someone who's just making it up as they go along, a demagogue, if you will. There's no reason for you to disbelieve the things that he's saying no matter how unrealistic they are. Right. And then the other part of it is is mandatory media literacy, which yeah. is like both of these things are so far overdue. Right. And had we had civics education and media liter- literacy for all millennials, we wouldn't we wouldn't be where we are now. I mean the you know it just turns out that like older people get more conservative, which people are shocked by this. I don't know why. It's literally always been true, yeah. but now people are like the boomers are. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but their parents and their parents before them—that's uh, always happened. But anyway, right? Um, but yeah.
0: Well, the media literacy is super important because everyone is on their phone constantly reading news or on social media, and they're talking about the news. You know. So, and we need it to be more than just understanding what fake news is. Right. I think people think media literacy begins and ends with identifying an article that's not true or real and learning how to tell whether a byline's real or if it's a fake image or not. But
1: really, media literacy
0: has to do with understanding what it took to generate that content or yeah. that video. One of the challenges with the generation, this latest generation, is that they see journalism as themselves, their perspective, their experience, their opinion, because they grew up like that. And that is, first of all, the number of influencers making money out there is not many. And second of all, you can't teach someone to do that. It kind of just happens. Yeah. And so we need to start with teaching, like what I teach, J-101, those kinds of things in high school. Yeah. So, and even earlier, if we can, junior high, to understand this is a news story and here's why it matters because people just don't understand. And I got to tell you, there aren't a lot of people that I, I like, teach. Ryan Cruz is one of them who wants to be a a government reporter. Like, most... (laughs) Most students, the idea of like going and being a watchdog, yeah. doesn't appeal to them. You yeah. know, uh, Ryan wanted to do that. He's like, "Yeah, that's exciting to yeah. me." But most people, they don't want to do that. I'll tell you what. Everybody does want to do though sports. Like, there's never a shortage of people who want to cover sports. Yeah. in In J one hundred
1: and one, so having people have appreciation, which, uh, which, in fairness, is a- probably, in a lot of ways, actually super boring to cover. Sports? Yeah. yeah. But, it's you get to, you know,
0: watch sports. You know, it's very different than going and sitting through a meeting to talk about housing or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, a lot of young people, they want to go into PR. They want to go to marketing. They want to go into TV. They want to be sports writers. Not a whole lot want to do what I do, which is, you know, have to cover the seven members of the city city council. So I think some kind of media literacy is <laughs> is important for sure. So if you believe Randy, no one should be subjected to listening to the seven efforts
1: of city council.
0: What, did he tell you that or what? No. <laughs> um, it's the impression that I get. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so what's ahead for you, Wade, going into two thousand twenty-four? You have this nonprofit which you recently started, hitting jams. So you're you're cultivating those stories, and what you said earlier is super important: telling your own stories. Yeah. Right? Like you don't depend on journalists to do it because they're understaffed. So you've got to do that. And then, you know, you've got your politics. You're always working on. What does two thousand twenty-four look like
1: for you? Um. Uh- Twenty twenty four looks like I'm trying to help nonprofit clients like, like you just said, basically that just helping some nonprofit clients tell their story and and really, you know, helping to find ways that they can make this a better community and, and
0: um, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. All right. Why should somebody hire you over any other PR professional who does what you do? What what what's specific about your skill set? Makes you the choice for a nonprofit organization.
1: Uh, I cost less money. You're hired. Yeah. all right. <laughs>
0: but that doesn't equate to value, though, does it? No, that's okay. no, no,
1: no, no. Um, no, I, I. In in, in fairness, I, I do keep my fees commensurate with the nonprofit world. I am conscientious of that. But frankly, I have a ton of experience, specifically in. That realm and communicating those kinds of issues, and and I mean, I have a very very strong skill set in working with particularly advocacy nonprofits um, mm-hmm. and helping them to craft a message and get the message out there. I, I, I mean, I you know worked across the state on on a variety of stuff, and then also here locally, and so it's it's really about pulling through all. All, you know, seeing the forest for the trees, essentially, and, and helping you to, to sort of re-envision your organization and what you're doing, and then figuring out what the best story to tell is from that. Because, like I said, a lot of people, you know, they got their heads down, they're doing their work, and they just don't have time to do that, um, you know, 180 foot, just like, okay, let's let's take a pause, let's look at this. Let's see where we're going. Let's see what we want to do. Let's figure out how we can rephrase it, mm-hmm. and then let's go take that story out. And I mean, I've I've sent countless pieces of direct mail. I've sent countless, countless, countless digital communications. I've you know I've had experience talking directly with you know in the political world with, with voters. But those exact same skills are relevant to nonprofits. You know that. It's the same, essentially, like digital marketing, direct mail marketing, that you do. But the difference is, is that with most people, they've missed that, that sort of uh, political communications aspect of honing a narrative and then delivering that message. And, um, you know, not to really speak too highly of political communications professionals, but I think by and large that they do that as bad as well as, as anyone um and uh, except some trial lawyers ironically. Jerry Spence school is very good about crafting a narrative and oh. I went through one of those courses too. So I also have this go. But but yeah, so that's 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 uh, that's my pitch. Yeah.
0: So for those of you who don't care about what we're going to talk about next, now's the time to, you know, say goodbye, but I just want to do 5 minutes before we wrap. Okay. Up. You agree with me, Dave Roberts? has got to go.
1: Ooh. Oh.
0: Wait, wait. Okay. That team has been too good for a decade for them to have only won at one time and he chokes during the playoffs now. I know that's
1: oversimplification. But some they
0: have to do something.
1: I I think that they got to just let him manage. And that and that's the that's the problem is he's so locked in on all that the analytics shit that Yes, it works in the regular season. And baseball is a weird game because of the length of the season. I don't know, I've never played professional baseball. But feels like if you're playing 162 62. games, then at some point in time you're just going to fall asleep and Lance Lynn can win some games. <laughs> but when it's the playoffs, newsflash, Lance Lynn cannot win games. Because Lance Lynn, shocker, is not good. <laughs> And I don't know why they put him out there. It's wild to me that they went into the playoffs. go. Here's our options. It's Kershaw, who I love to death. We all do. He should be at least the number three right now. Like no one has a number four anymore. I understand this baseball in 2023. But and again, I, I get it. We got hit by the injury bug like crazy bad. If we had full health, Bueller, full health, May, full health, Gonsolin, full health, Kershaw, like. Do I think we would have gotten a buzz kick by Arizona? No. But, dude, at the same time, it's, I get, I watched as Betts and Freeman, like, backed their way into the postseason. Betts was dead going into the postseason. His, yeah. his, his average went down, Freeman's average went down, and you could just see, Betts just doesn't have the same pop. He got high, and then he was not. And, if that's what you're going to do, then, dude, get your get your coaches to tell these guys to be patient with pitches. The Dodgers traditionally have been the most patient at running up pitch counts. And it's like I watched the post, and like, what is going on? It's like watching a t-ball team. They <laughs> swing at everything. Yeah. And it was awful. And I blame Roberts for not... Managing and I th- believe that he has the capability to do that, mm. but they're a victim of their own success. Where in 2023, this the analytics thing has worked so well in the regular season, and it has like it's cool. James Outman is like you know, he's like a 0.9 war, and you know, we, we can replace fine, but let me tell you what you can't replace in the postseason. Corey fucking Seager. Why is he not on the Dodgers? I got to watch this guy hit like 12 home runs or what? (laughs) He's the most home runs of any shortstop in the playoffs ever now. And there was absolutely, like, I blame Roberts, but I blame the front office more. They're too smart for their own good. They're too smart by half. You know? It's like, the guy who performs in the playoffs, keep him. (laughs) Like, yeah. we got Trey Turner. He sucked in the playoffs. Right. And then they let Trey T- Turner go. And they're like, well, you know, Gavin Lux. He's young and upcoming and whatever. i like, it's not like Corey is like, 57 years old. <laughs> He's, like, 26. They could have signed him. what they got all the money in the world. Right. Anyway, I'm sure they'll jack up the tickets next year so we can all pay $50 into one regular season baseball game. This is the clip of the show I'm sending to Jerry. That's, that's <laughs> fine. We're, we're coming... Yeah, have fun with Bob Melvin. That worked out so well for the Padres, Jerry.
0: <laughs> and uh, last thing. Yes. People may know, you're a big boxing fan. You yes. All the boxing parties at your house. Yes, famous boxing parties. And recently, you're not an MMA guy. No, I you hate, hate MMA. MMA. You hate MMA. Noted MMA hater. And so you were one of those boxing people who was disappointed to find out that A guy with no professional fights from MMA could walk in and go 10 rounds with the heavyweight champion of the world and even knock him down and convince some people he won when he lost a close split decision. Tyson Fury, Francis Ngannou, just briefly your thoughts. All right, I'm I'm about to go
1: full Stephen A. Smith here. Okay, please, yes. That was the most embarrassing (laughs) sporting output I think I've ever seen in my entire life. He is the heavyweight champion of the world. He fought in three of the best heavyweight fights I've ever seen with Wilder. Yeah. Wilder is the, if not the, maybe the second heaviest hitter with like peak iron mic I've ever seen, ever. Mm-hmm. He has a thunderous right hand. Got up, beat him. He didn't just get up. He went. Oh, you know, he okay, was okay. out. It was, was the, was the most unbelievable. If, you, if you've never seen Wilder Fury 1, please watch Wilder Fury 1. It's the most unbelievable ending to any fight you'll ever see. It's wild. But he went into that fight. He was not prepared. He did not care. It was a money grab from Saudi Arabia. Now, granted, it's not like Tyson Fury has any, like, moral high ground. But have some pride, man. Yeah. Go in there and show this guy who has had zero professional fights that you're the heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> it was embarrassing, it was ridiculous, it was a bad look for boxing. Yeah. And there are there are a million reasons to watch boxing, but there's like a million and one to not watch it. And that was a big one. Yeah. And he should be ashamed of himself. And honestly, I hope Usyk beats the ever-living crap out of him. <laughs> honestly, honestly, like I, I am now a hardcore Usyk fan. Let's go, baby! Freedom for Ukraine. They had to push back that fight because of that clown show.
0: Right, because he got a little, yes, a little beat up in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, um, I have to say though, if they fight again, and if Deontay Wilder fights Francis Ngannou in a boxing ring, come on, he's going. Deontay to
1: Wilder is going to take his head off.
0: Because now there's no one's going to take them lightly, and they're actually going to train. But, hundred percent. And uh, you know Tyson Fury before he retires, I think he needs a rematch with that guy just to just to say
1: I, he can do better. Uh, I I mean, I guess I, I just I would prefer none of these boxers fought these MMA guys because yeah. this is. Cu- I don't understand this. It's like, are we going to bring J.J. Watt and have him play one-on-one with LeBron? Like, I can't believe LeBron beat him one-on-one. Right. I mean, it's a well, different sport. That's-